Welcome to another episode of the Ipsos UK Survey Research Methods Centre podcast. I'm Sam Clements, Head of the Probability Surveys Unit here at Ipsos. Today, we're going to be talking about push-to-web surveys, what they are and how well they work as a way of collecting robust representative data. We'll be particularly focusing on whether there are some audiences they work better for than others and how we can manage that by considering respondent-centered approaches. And we have two excellent guests with us here today to discuss this. Firstly, Laura Wilson, who is one of the leads within the UK Government Data Quality Hub at the Office for National Statistics, where she specializes in creating and delivering best practice guidance and training for data collection. Laura also co-wrote a book, which was published last December, based on the work she did in her previous role to transform the UK Labour Force survey called Respondent-Centred Surveys, Stop, Listen and Then Design. This outlines a new approach to survey design, which puts the respondent at the heart of the design process. So welcome to you, Laura. And we're also joined by Eileen Irvin, an Associate Director at Ipsos, who sits in our Survey Research Methods Centre. She specialises in high-quality, large-scale random probability surveys with results used as official statistics in healthcare regulation and for national assessment frameworks. So, welcome to you, Eileen. Probably the best place to start is to describe what we mean by push to web and say a bit more about where it's currently used. So, maybe Eileen, would you like to say a bit more about that? Yes, so um, when we talk about push to web, what we mean is when someone is invited to take part in a survey online using an offline method. Um, so that can be in kind of any other way. It could be knocking on their door and asking them to do it. It could be um, calling them on the phone and asking them to do it. But most commonly, it's sending them a letter in the post with um, login details um, that they can use to access an online survey. And have you got any examples of where we currently might use that? Um, so it's it's often used when you want to get very large scale data that's random probability. So where a face to face survey might be too expensive, um, sending things in the post can be more uh, more cost effective. Um, and uh, if you top it up with a paper survey at the end to catch those offliners, um, we can treat it as pretty representative of the general population. Um, the other time it's really used is if you have a population who is very suited to online methods, but the only address you, you know, the only way to contact them you have is something offline like their, their postal address. Okay, so as you said, I mean, it sounds like it might, the online bit might work better for some people than others. And so it's possible we might need to think about how we deal with different audiences when we're doing push to web. I don't know, Laura, if you've got any thoughts around where it works well and what we can do to make it work better for people. Yeah, so obviously uh, web is really unique in that it doesn't have that sort of human interaction like you would with um, a face-to-face -face mode or a telephone mode. And I think we found, you know, that requires different levels and, and types of assurances, um, essentially, in order to gain people's participation um, in the online surveys. Um, so yeah, this might require a different approach in terms of the type of communication that you send and the content maybe that, that goes with that then. Um, and also just that the web take up might be higher in some areas than than others. Um, so it does make sense potentially to target then in those areas. So I think um, knowing your audience, knowing if you are running um, existing push to web surveys, you can kind of maybe use that to get a feel of where it works well and maybe where it doesn't work well and do that analysis and then maybe start to target and tailor your approach with those insights. And do we have any feedback as to where it does work particularly well and where it is more of a struggle? I, I think it 
it really depends uh, depends on the audience. So um, from uh, this, we did some work with the National Patient Survey Programme, um, looking at moving that over from a postal only to a push to web approach. And what we really saw is this: the, the programme has surveys that cover very different areas of healthcare. So they have an inpatient survey, a maternity survey, paediatrics, uh, community mental health and urgent and emergency care. And what we really saw is that the maternity survey is where it was most effective. You know, we had the vast majority of participants taking part online, something like nine in 10 took part online. You know, it was really effective. It worked so well for them. And that is a population who are new parents they've just had a baby they they're going to be of a certain age group they're going to have interacted with um, health services for quite a long time and then by contrast on the um, inpatient survey it still worked well it worked well enough but we saw that the older populations didn't use the online as much as the younger populations and as a survey that was targeted at people who were accessing their healthcare. Um, you know, who'd been in, having an impatient say they tended to be older. Um, so I think age does tend to, to play a, a part in that. Also kind of level of comfort online, which isn't necessarily linked to to age. Um, and then there are also accessibility considerations um, for some people online might be more accessible um, for others. It can be less. So, I mean, do we tend to see any differences between the people who respond online or by different modes. Um, obviously, you've already mentioned age, but are, even within age groups, do you see any differences? I think the other one that we really see is um, deprivation. Um, so in general, we say that people who respond online tend to be kind of better educated, higher income. Um, they tend to be whiter um, in general. Um, that's not always true. Um, it it also depends kind of on your other contact modes. So where we've used um, text message reminders, they worked really effectively with people from deprived areas um, and people from ethnic minority backgrounds. Um, but where you don't have a, a mobile number, that's not not always possible. Yeah, we compared for our, um, as you may be aware, like we compared the um, labour force survey data with our online version of the LFS, and actually we found very similar things with the index of multiple deprivation. And but broadly, actually, our general characteristics, the novel ones you kind of wait by, were pretty similar across the board. So we weren't really finding any stark differences there um, between that, and then generally with with age as well. And um, we did find that we had some samples of slightly underrepresented. Um, so um, I think it was males and females when compared to mid-year estimates, um, but both in, in, in the LFS and the, and the LMS, that was the case then. So again, it was just quite comparable really across the two surveys, even though one was face-to-face -face, um, and telephone and the other was online only. Do you, in terms of response rates, how comparable are they to other modes? Um, so push to web can be pretty comparable with um, postal. That's where you tend to see it kind of most similar. It might be a little bit lower, but it's it's generally within the same ballpark. It does tend to be lower than face to face um, just because you don't have someone kind of knocking up on their doorstep. Um, but uh, for a sort of much wider audience, it, it's more cost. It's generally more cost effective. Um, the thing we have seen, though, is the impact of COVID. Um, so during COVID, we saw a real bump in the people responding to our push to web surveys and particularly responding online. 
um, that has tailed off in terms of the response rate. I think, you know, there, it's quite something being asked to do a survey when you're sort of locked in your house um, compared to when you have all sorts of exciting other things that you might want to do. Um, but we are still seeing more and more people taking part in on, online. And I think the pandemic forced a lot of people who were initially a bit nervous about doing things online to actually have the opportunity to do it and to realise that that was a possibility for them. And the census being online first, I think, also made people aware that a survey was something that they they could do online and that it, it was it wasn't as scary as maybe they thought it had been. And so... Laura, thinking about how we might be able to tailor the approach to different audiences when we're doing our push to web surveys, do you have any thoughts about how you might do that um, and how it varies, obviously, depending what sample information we might have? Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, from my perspective, respondent centered design is absolutely perfect for this. So it's all about being flexible and optimizing to the conditions that are the constraints that you're working within. Um, and it's not about you know, forcing everybody down the same route or giving everyone the same experience, which is great for operational purposes. But actually, when it comes to providing a respondent experience that's really strong and really positive, it doesn't really um, help us in that sense. And then obviously that affects response. So I think RCD does generally allow us to explore the needs of the specific groups and the different audiences and then to develop uh, content and strategy to fit around them. So I think if I were to do this, I would definitely carry out a lot of qualitative discovery research with those hard to reach groups, exploring their concerns, maybe what are their barriers to participation, and then using these insights, start to prototype new designs or um, a new strategy, but really involve them in that process. Um, so making sure they're part of the, the design process, they're really heavily involved in testing and assuring what is being developed, um, just to make sure that what is put in front of them then does meet their needs and addresses their concerns if they have any. Um, and it, you know, it may be in that research you find that actually a traditional comms approach isn't what's going to work for those groups and we can't fully just rely on that like we'd normally send a letter and think that's great, that will that will get to people and they'll do what we need them to do. So actually it might be that we need to do a lot of community engagement potentially with those groups in order to get um, the response. So I think it's really about um, thinking outside the box, trying new things and um, yeah, just exploring alternative ways to gain that response and not sort of staying in the traditional realm of sending a letter and, and hoping that will do all the work that we needed to do really. I'm interested your thoughts around community engagement because um, this is something we often discuss whether that will help response on a survey but often the issue is we're going to a very small proportion of a uh, population and so it's how you target any community engagement well. I'm just interested to know if ONS have had any successful attempts at doing that sort of community engagement and whether it, you have found it helpful. Yeah, so obviously the census um, that spends a lot of money and time doing this sort of thing, and they obviously have the budget and the resources to do it, which is different to the regular surveys. So that was effective with the work that they did, and they've been doing that for quite a few censuses now. So, I mean, that's always been something that's worked well with them, but obviously it is a very different challenge when it comes to doing that for a survey instead. Um, so I think... This is something we're beginning to explore potentially um, in ONS around how we start to contact our respondents and uh, I don't have the answer on it at the moment, but I think, you know, there are things that we can do, even if you are using a survey. Um, obviously, certain groups are very well connected, they have lots of networks, so even if you are doing a sample survey, there's still a way potentially of having an in with those groups and using their networks um, and just trying different approaches, really. So I think very much in the exploratory phase of how we can apply that to surveys, but obviously we've seen it work in the census then. And also, how important do you think it is? We've been talking about push to web 
and the online element, sometimes actually working really well, um, but not always for all groups, but potentially it does give you similar results. But how important do you both think it is <clears throat> to offer an offline method? And does that, I mean, it will vary from population to population, but if we're thinking of a general population survey, would you both think that it's still important to do that? Or can we rely on online alone? Um, so I, I would say that it's important to offer an offline method, um, but how easy you make that offline method depends on your population. So for a survey where you know that the vast majority of them are going to be online, you know that um, they are, you know, a, a very online population. If you, you've tested it, um, so particularly young people, um, we know that they are much more likely to respond online. It's just much easier for them. Um, then in order not to completely exclude someone who just doesn't feel comfortable taking part online, having something like saying, here's our free phone number, you can call it and ask about the survey and you can take part, you know, someone can take you through the survey if you, ha you have a visual impairment or something that means that taking part um, using the tool that we have isn't going to work for you. Um, we There is an option there, you're not completely excluded um, from a kind of a moral standpoint of including people that that's important to me um but in terms of general population we do know that our uh people who respond using our offline method are different and we also know that big uh change changes in how people respond can also impact your trends so if you move from a survey where people who uh you know where 25% of your respondents were online to 75% of your respondents being online, we know that can impact how they respond as well as who responds. Um, and that's just also important to factor in if your survey is going for kind of multiple uh, multiple waves. Um, so I think having having an, op an opportunity is important, not just for impacting, you know, who responds, make, making sure everyone has the opportunity to respond, but also, um, it also has a big impact on your response rates. Um, we know that without it, you, you are often seeing quite a large drop in your response rate. I think, you know, a lot of us, our surveys, you get half of your respondents or a third of your respondents using that um, offline method. Um, and that, that can have a really big impact on even just practically the costs of doing the survey in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. I think um, when it comes to the general population surveys that I think when online first came about and as a community, we started exploring it. I think there may have been some views that potentially we could just use online and that would be it. But obviously, as more research happened in that space, it became really clear that actually there are pitfalls to it when it comes to your response profile, uh, potentially. Um, same with, with every mode. So bringing all the different modes together, obviously, is, is great because that gives you a better chance of getting a truly representative sample. So I'm definitely in, in the, the camp of mixed mode survey design for sure <laughs> definitely um and I'd also the other thing I'd just throw in there is just because it's like this now doesn't mean it will always be like this I think that's also something we have to kind of keep an eye on as people just become more and more confident online I mean if you think you know you know a couple of couple of hundred years ago if you'd have tried to do a paper survey that wouldn't have worked because the majority of the population were illiterate they would have needed a person there to take them through it because they couldn't read the instructions. We're not in that situation now. We can treat a postal questionnaire as general population because the vast majority of the population would be able to read it. Um, that doesn't mean there aren't, it isn't important to offer other options, but you know, things are always moving. And I think people's comfort online is also always moving. 
Can I just pick up? You mentioned as well that as the proportion doing different modes changes, you potentially get changes in how they respond. How problematic is that in terms of trends or um, for clients who want to track change over time? Um, it, I mean, it can be problematic. Um, so you really have to look at kind of why, what's driving you and whether it's it's worth it. You know, I've definitely worked on surveys which have trends where we realised that a change in some of our contact strategy would impact um, really positively the people in, uh, taking part online and really encourage people to take part online. But it would impact how they responded. You know, generally they're more negative. And so a decision was made that we would wait on making that change until we were making a larger questionnaire change and losing the trends anyway, um, so that you can kind of factor that in. But if you're kind of looking at it and going, the cost reasons we really want it to be on more online, or there are things that we can ask online that we just can't ask on paper because, for, you know, for practical reasons, that's how the survey's set up. Um, there might be a really good reason that it's worth breaking the trends to get more people online and, and have them respond uh, using that mode. Laura, I'm just interested as well. Obviously, we've been talking about general population surveys, but sometimes we will have information about people when we're following them up. And I know things like the Labour Force Survey, you have multiple waves where you go back to the same participants. So could you say a bit more about how you might, when you have information about people more than just their address, how you might tailor things and, or how you have tailored things in the past to try and improve how the uptake to these push to web type surveys? Yeah, sure. Um, so when we started the respondent-centred work, um, initially the plan was to create this generic set of materials um, and communication strategy to, as a proof of concept to see whether RCD worked. Um, we found that it did. Uh, and then the next phase really was to start exploring this tailoring and actually how can we maybe replace some of the, the findings or target and tailor some of the content to specific groups, maybe in between wave engagement, uh, for example, um, because obviously that's really important with the longitudinal survey that people um and, and we identified it as a really strong need from respondents that they want to know how their data is used and then that encourages them to take part so that work hasn't started yet um so hopefully you know the plans will be to start exploring that alongside the other different um sampling um techniques or, or changes that will be made in terms of pursuing different groups and how we target potentially um with mode there as well so i think it's going to be around It'd be quite high level it probably would end up being more regional potentially than um uh, i mean that's one way to go you could start it by tailoring your content in your between wave engagement to regions um or if you're super advanced there are software to, there are tools out there like mosaic where you can actually try and um find out a bit more about the potential people living in a particular area then start to tailor the content but that does have huge operational um constraints and a burden associated with that then so you know we can have all these great ideas from a research perspective but can we actually operationalize them i think that's always going to be the question so um yeah i think maybe initially just trying to start with tailoring some of the content to the region that people are in and finding out how them giving their data um, affects where they live and then obviously that um kind of having that social buy-in in that sense then i think that would be a really good place to start because it's quite high level it's quite easy to operationalize and then if that works then right can we do anything else next then and try and explore something a bit more uh, in a bit more personalized way then and i guess the next question is do what is the future for these approaches and push to web surveys do we see push to web surveys taking over from standard face-to-face -face 
on the whole? Or do we think there's a role for face-to-face -face alongside? And if so, when would you do face-to-face -face and when would you do push to web? I think there's definitely a, a space for face-to-face, um, -face, but I think we will see more and more face-to-face -face offering other modes first, just as it becomes more and more expensive. Um, but there will always be populations where it's more important to spend the money getting a small number of interviews than it is getting a kind of big widespread um, number of interviews and their face-to-face is, is always going to be the better option. Um, and also for certain topics, um, both ones that are that are potentially uh, very emotive and you might feel uncomfortable just asking people the questions without having someone there to help if they need it. Um, but also uh, there are certain questions that we know are really impacted by the response rate. So for example, when people ask about what, uh, how likely are you to volunteer? If your response rate is low, you will get more people saying they volunteer than if your response rate is high, because when your response rate is low, you've got more of the people who are willing to volunteer their time. Um, and so things like that work very well with face-to-face -face surveys because you are getting, you know, a someone there on the ground talking to them and can do more of that encouraging. And what's ONS's view on this? Um, yeah, I mean, I think web first is, is, is where we're going with, with our surveys, but we will always have the face-to-face -face mode and we'll always have the other modes there as options, you know, to be using those in their design. I think really with, with the push to web, it's going to be taking that intelligence sampling approach and really making more use of information and allocating to mode a bit more intelligently than we have done maybe in the past rather than broad brush potentially. Um, so there's lots of options in that space. And I think when it actually comes to designing push to web surveys, I think we actually need to shift in how we think about doing that design side like I mentioned earlier we, you know, we don't have that interview or that human interaction there so we really have a massive void to fill if we are going to go down the push to web route and prioritize that um, so how do you kind of replicate that experience uh, and those assurances and um, last week I was at um, an international UNECE event and the number one focus that came out um, of that event for the survey to um, the survey community to um, focus on in the future was actually seeing respondents as an asset and obviously that's very much in the context of everyone moving online so and that really strongly aligns to the respondent-centred um, approach but the phrase sort of paradigm shift was brought about during the workshop and I think it's really changing how we think about designing our web surveys and also being a bit more radical with our incentive strategies I think for push to web um, so I'm not sure what that what they are necessarily yet um, I think we just need to do a bit more thinking in that space and um, yeah just try some different things because um, obviously we're all suffering with falling response rate across all modes so um, I think in order for it to really succeed without that human interaction um, in online only in particular sorry but um, we need to do a bit more in that space I think. Yeah the incentive side is interesting um, when we were doing our REACT uh, COVID-19 prevalence study during the pandemic um, for the last few waves because we had age on the sample frame, because it was an NHS sample frame, we managed to use targeted incentives. Um, so we basically incentivized younger people where response was lower, um, and we didn't incentivize older people who already responded fairly well. And we found that doing that massively improved the representativeness of the sample. So it's interesting. It was really interesting to see how targeted incentives could have such a massive impact on your sample efficiency basically so it's interesting that ONS are looking at 
incentive strategies? And do you think targeted incentives might be something you would consider in the future? It's discussed regularly. I think there are some ethical concerns around doing that. But, you know, we're all operating in a space with limited resources, um, budget, time. And I think we need to be a bit more. My personal view is that I think we need to be a bit more radical about it. And, um uh, take a few more risks potentially with it. So um, potentially, who knows? I mean, it, it's, it's tabled and it's discussed quite regularly, but generally we try and go down an approach that works for everybody. But I think at this point, we need to start um, thinking out of the box a little bit and see what else we can do. But that's really interesting to know about um, your research in that space as well. So I can I can feed that back. Okay, sticking to the future again, what can Push to Web give us that um, potentially face-to-face or other modes can't? I think the big thing that Push to Web can give is size um, for a relatively reasonable cost while still maintaining that kind of high quality robustness. Um, So you look at something like the GP patient survey, which has been uh, offered as Push to Web since since the beginning. And that was because the scale of it made face to face just just impossible. You know, we go out to uh, we get about 750,000 responses a year um, and you just to try and do that as a face-to-face survey would be completely prohibitive. But by getting that scale, we're able to provide data on, you know, nearly 7,000 GP practices and look at them kind of with some robustness, but also look at some really detailed subgroup analysis. Um, so look at the experiences, not just at a kind of top level by ethnicity, but within ethnicity by age and within age by something else. Um, and there is the scope to do that, um, which offers a real richness um, when we're looking at the kind of things like health inequalities landscape that are so important. Yes, and I suppose surveys like the Active Live Survey for Sport England really wanted local authority level data. And as you say, you can't do that with face-to-face unless you had so much money, whereas it becomes feasible with a push-to-web approach. I think my strong personal view is that we, across the board, across the end end of you know designing and delivering a survey, we now need to be more flexible than we have been in the past. I think we've been very rigid in how we design and deliver surveys and it's been very operationally focused um, and almost like operationally or technology led, for example, and that's really hindered how we've been able to do things. But I think what we're seeing through different conversations and through different pieces of research and the way people are going and the conversations that have been had is that actually we are needing to think more about tailoring more broadly and push the webs just like another string to our bow then. And that's where it kind of comes in and allows us to do something differently and it's really great to see us not trying to square peg round hole everything all the time you know so the future is to be more flexible and to provide more options for people to take part even though operationally that makes our lives more difficult it's uh it does put the respondent more at the center of what we're doing which is important and i definitely also think there's there's also a history of kind of going oh this is the right method you know, this is the best way to do push to web. Well, is it the best way to do push to web for the population you're actually trying to measure? That's yeah. not necessarily the same thing. You know, we when we were trying to adapt the push to web design for the community mental health survey, we had to fully recognise that it's very different sending someone repeated letters and text messages with small intervals if you're asking about, you know, an inpatient stay than when you're asking someone about who you know has a mental health condition about their mental health experiences which might be quite traumatic and um, so it was really important to engage with um with service users and health professionals and carers to make sure that 
we understood how we could reassure and also what, what where was the limit what was appropriate to ask someone to do and how is it appropriate to ask them and what could reassure them and what did you what changes did you make to your methodology um, so we added longer gaps between the reminders and we took out some of the reminders um, just because it was it was more um, long term. We also really thought about the way we framed the materials. So we weren't, uh, th- there was very much a sense that, you know, if it was too much, we completely understood it was, e- you know, we made sure the opt out processes were as easy as possible and didn't necessarily involve talking to a human. Because um, if you're having a, an episode a psychotic episode that might be too much for you um and there was also a really importance about saying when we when we talk to people who are using these services we're not talking to them as patients with something wrong we're talking to them as service users who are accessing support for something they need and that is also just a very different tonal shift in in how the materials worked um I think people want to be seen as humans, right? And yeah. not as data units or those sorts of things. So anything you can do to humanize our content and make it relatable is obviously going to have massive impact then and building that rapport that that interviewer would have done, right? Yeah. When they would have been on the doorstep. So, yeah, definitely. Um, so, yeah, we've, uh, um, and that did, it did work. You know, we got, we got enough respondents, but we also were in a position where we weren't, you know, that, we felt was the right balance between inviting people to do the survey and not putting too much pressure on them to do something that might be difficult. Great. So I think that's all we've got time for today. But thank you ever so much to my two guests, Laura and Eileen. And it's been really interesting to hear about Push to Web and especially how we can tailor it and use put the respondent more at the centre of the way we design our studies. Um, because obviously they're the important part and we want them to take part in the way that works best for them. Thank you.